I take the politician's privilege, which sort of says, now this is a question you ask, but if you, on reflection, you might have asked me the following. Um, and I want to start by a, a simple sort of uh, recollection. I can exactly date the first time I was in this lecture theatre. And it was in January 2009, and it was part of a series which St. Anthony's does on uh, parliamentary engagement. And peace come and then it was sort of eight weeks. And ours was on who, who needs democracy. Uh, and we arrived, and we actually, on that occasion, decided to delay the start of the lecture on the basis that we knew that nobody would turn up for it. Uh, or at least not at that time. And the reason for that was the clash with Obama's inaugural speech. Uh, so we, we, we kind of decided that there was no point trying to compete with Obama. Um, but of course, so January 2009, all of us were reconfirmed in the basic belief that, you know, to, that today is better than yesterday, uh, that tomorrow will be better than today, that we as true progressives uh, would always end up with something better. And, you know, as the Labour Party in 1997 used to think, uh, sing, things can only get better. And Obama for us was the demonstration of that progressive belief. And then Trump happened. And Obama. Uh, sorry? And Obama, Obama happened. Uh, but after Obama, Trump happened. <laughs> so, so what's your point, sir? <laughs> my, 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 my point is that probably Obama also wasn't what you thought he was. Uh, yeah, but tell me, give you a basic yeah. advice that sometimes heckling is more effective when you wait till you finish the sentence. Uh, because I may make your point. We'll bring Tim in later in the discussion, so don't worry. I believe he knows one or two things. I didn't get to. So, then Trump happens, and what do we do? Do we at that moment stop and reflect as to what happened to the body politic? No, we didn't. We started sneering, we started condemning, we started saying this was just absolutely awful. Uh, and we did not reflect at all. And the reason why I'm telling this little story is, uh, A, because it's a nice opener, but also I think, uh, if I want to get terribly religious, I think it's the most, Matthew 7.3, which says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? And I think when we talk about Europe and our contested visions of it, uh, Matthew 7 may be quite a useful starting point before we find everything wrong with the rest of the world. But we are so perfect, it doesn't even require explaining anymore. Uh, Neil McGregor, the former uh, director of the British Museum, did a series on um, living with the gods. And in his introduction, he said, we debated whether it should be God or gods. And the difference was that if you have gods, you know, Zeus can have a fight with Poseidon and one wins and the other one loses and then you get on with it. If you only have one god, when something unexpected or as you think undesirable happens, you can only explain it in terms of sinners. And I think we got ourselves in the body politic and in Europe in particular into the session that we no longer agree or disagree. Uh, you're either a sinner or you're a liar. And politics actually is about contesting ideas. At the moment, uh, a few weeks ago, no, a few months ago now, uh, I was at a breakfast with Henry Kissinger, who, however old he may be, is still a sharp observer of the world. And he said, in his current, in, he cannot remember a time in life where Europe was neither the cause of a problem 
nor the solution to any problem. And I think that is our real challenge. There are big challenges out there, global flows of people, goods, money, trade, uh, none of which, by the way, I think in terms of goods is probably the closest, none of which we are uh, addressing, uh, never mentioned the, the environment. And we have big internal challenges, and to me the biggest internal challenge which Europe faces is the division between countries who are members of the Euro and those who are not. And for both of them, there are things which we need to address. And if anybody wants to pursue this question of Scotland later on, I'm very happy to uh, deal with that. The second one is we talk about nationalism. And uh, because, you know, the, 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 as, we, as we denounce Trump and say we are so much better, uh, and we say we've got to sort of take ourselves away from populism, we also tend to forget, and I'm using a German example here because Germany was the country of my birth, this kind of difference between liberal nationalism and romantic nationalism. And these things, in Germany, saw them in the 19th century, and unfortunately, the wrong kind of nationalism in Germany won. But even if you take the United Kingdom, isn't it extraordinary, absolutely extraordinary, that if you're a Scottish nationalist, you're deemed to be left-wing, progressive, and international. But if an English nationalist, you seem to be right-wing, inward-looking, and despicable. Uh, I just think, that requires us to pause and just think for a moment. But the real challenge I would want to put to you is that I think in 50 years' time, it will be seen as more remarkable that the United Kingdom joined the common market as it was in 1973 than that it decided to leave in 2016. And I would also contest to you that until the Maastricht opt-outs, it was perfect. That was the key point where the Brits were saying, we never went, we never intended to go down the political integration route. It was always about trade for us. And all that was fine until you had the introduction of the euro, in which case, those kind of parallel and saying, roughly speaking, we're going in some direction, kind of got crystallized. And as of today, the polls today for the European elections in the United Kingdom, who, by the way, whilst to begin with, I thought were a bad thing, I now think are a good thing because it allows people to kind of crystallize some of their feelings. The Brexit party, which was started only six weeks ago, has 30%. Labour has 21%, Conservatives 12 so Lib Dem 10 Change UK 9 Greens 9 and UKIP 3 That must tell you something in a way which we engage with, not sneer, not say that the electorate is stupid, engage, they're trying to tell you something. Even Mervyn King, the former governor of the Bank of England, recently made it quite clear that as far as he's concerned, the referendum in the United Kingdom actually wasn't about economic well-being. And much of the European project was about, let's get rid of ideology, let's get rid of the isms, provided we promise you a better economic tomorrow we can sort of kind of tone everything down. This was about a sense of belonging, this was a sense of identity, and I also think it was an English problem, but we, 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 we can talk about that. It's quite extraordinary, by the way, that the, the, the Remain campaign in the United Kingdom had better in Scotland, better in Wales, but in England, it badged itself better in Britain. So that kind of leaves me with just two, two final observations. One is because I'm not there for the dinner tonight.
tonight, I wanted to share with you something. I went to the Tate Britain exhibition on McCullen uh, today. If anybody's in London for before the 7th, do go and see it. It's Cambodia, Iraq, you name it, it is horrendous. But there was only one set of pictures which almost reduced me to tears, and one picture in particular. And it was a group of people standing, uh, looking over a wall. And there was a youngster, uh, barely tall enough to look over the wall. And he looked sad. And the caption was, 1961. People from the East looking into the West in Berlin. And the reason why that reduced me to tears is because that is my history. I grew up, I was born in 1955. And what I think in the European narrative, I will not allow anybody to take away from me, and I will not allow anybody to take away from the United Kingdom, is my European roots and my European history, just because in terms of a governance structure, we've decided to go to that different structure. That is a big danger, we should not fall into that trap. And I'm now going to say something which will surprise people, and that is, I have no problem with federalism. I actually think for the Euro countries, federalism is the only way they have to go. They will have to dis uh, come up with the European demos, and that will require European, uh, pan-European countries. But the big dividing line will be between those countries who have a single currency and those who don't. And by the way, what would it have taken for me to campaign for Remain in the referendum? Would have been very simple. If David Cameron had come back from negotiations and said, the European Union, with an expanding number of members, accepts that forever and ever there will be Euro countries and non-Euro countries, and we've got two structures to bring those two things together. But because we didn't, I'm afraid that's how I felt. But federalism is something that will probably have to happen in a larger scale in the European Union. Thank you very much indeed for um, a whole variety of very uh, thoughtful and provocative points. I'm going to come back to plenty of that immediately uh, after in the discussion. That last point about federalism, I think, in a sense, lets us move very smoothly to our next speaker in the shape of Damien Bosnack. And Damien, I wonder if we could move to you in reminding ourselves that we're talking about the contested narratives of today's Europe, but we're also looking forward as well as back and thinking about how things might look, not just in five months or five years, but 50 years, is also part of this discussion too. Thank you. Thank you, Elisa. Um, I just wanted to mention very quickly that we're also running in the UK for the European Parliament elections out of uh, London. So we haven't given up on the UK either. So I think when we think about um, narratives and contested visions, as you said, uh, the big thing or insight that I also took from the discussions earlier is that a narrative is powerful if it draws from a fact that people experience and then have a sentiment towards and then it's like taken up by someone, a politician or someone, who takes it and talks about it and then people feel that it somehow connects to them. And I think sometimes when we have these theoretical debates about narratives, we forget that we can't just have them up here in the realm without connecting them to the life's reality. And so I think the, the big insight for me, that, and that is also the story of why we founded Void, was that people are currently experiencing um, big questions, big uh, I would say problems, but also like phenomena that are affecting their personal lives, and they don't see the narrative um, from the EU that will help them answer these questions. And so, 
just uh, I think the one thing that I can do here as um, a representative of this European movement that we built is to give you some insights about what kind of stories I heard from the people that I met uh, across Europe over the last two years and also maybe tell you a bit about what we did because it is, I think, a phenomena. I don't know how long it will be or if we will um, actually be able to fulfill our vision of building a long-term European party. But I think it's a phenomena that speaks for itself, that exists, and that there are people that are standing behind it um, for the like, discussions uh, to come also, referring back to the new cleavages and um, whether they have political representation or not. So. We decided to found this political party um, or pan-European political party because we saw that on the one side we have huge question marks, big challenges that we that we face. So, for example, I mean, a Romanian that I know, Jonut, who's part of our movement, said, "I can see uh, how the government is legalizing corruption. I can't see the, the answer. We need to somehow, from the European perspective, find an answer to this to stop this." Or Federica from the south of Italy, who says, "Like." I had to leave my single mom alone and leave the South of Italy because I couldn't stay here and find a career path that works for me. And why isn't there any form of like uh, bigger investments from the European level that can somehow make our country work? So we that relates a bit uh, back to the austerity um, people that we talked about. And then there's uh, Stavros, who I actually met um, a week after uh, I met uh, with Timothy Garden Ash here um, a few years ago and asked him about his vision for Europe and he said like, look, I don't understand why Merkel is halving my loan, my, my wage. So why is this person having an effect of my life reality, my, my life's reality and I cannot vote her out of power if, if I don't agree with what's happening? So I think there's this big question of um, like rule of law, of uh, social equality, of, um, of financial crisis and, and financial flows and we don't have a European solution yet to answer to these questions. So there, they have one common denominator, and that is that they are all beyond the national border. These are all phenomena that we cannot solve and will not, never be able to solve with just a national perspective. And we know that there's this one answer of saying, let's go back to the nation state, easy, everybody uh, like, cleans in front of their own door, as we say in Germany, and somehow we will come together in the, like, uh, you know, with the heads of state and somehow figure this out. And that is actually, to be honest, uh, somehow logical and sensible solution because you just say okay we go back to the nation state we figure it out and that's understandable and that is a narrative that I can buy because I can connect to it it talks to the problems it um, takes the problems up and then it says here's the solution and we haven't managed to find a solution that is really a European answer yet we, we're not able to tell this narrative and that is because we don't really have European politics there are multiple examples for this you currently, and you know this all, but like in the parliament, the, a lot of the power, in the European parliament, a lot of the power is still with the national parties. I talked to an EPP person, vice general secretary, um, a few weeks ago who said, yeah, we narrowed, like we watered down our program so that it like, accommodates all the national parties that are part of the EPP. You look at Manfred Weber and he's, you see that he's for Nord Stream, or against Nord Stream and the Chancellor Merkel is for Nord Stream. And you have many examples of national politics being more powerful than the, than the European groups in, that are actually doing it. I mean, there are a lot of lobby organizations currently moving back to Germany because they believe that they can make more of an impact there than they can make in the European Parliament. You look at the Council and that's obvious, I mean, that's national interest, so that it, the Commission tries a bit to build the European perspective, but it's not strong enough, it's not democratically powered enough to do that. So, where is, the European, where is our European politics that can actually solve these problems? 
So what we try to do is say, okay, we need to make European politics a reality, and that's why we built a European party, and we faced a lot of impediments. I mean, uh, you have to understand that there are like different electoral laws or no electoral laws, like in Italy, in, in different countries. And just to give you some examples of how random that is, um, in Italy you need 150,000 signatures to be able to run for the European Parliament elections. In Germany it's 4,000. In Italy you need to have a notary sitting next to you on the piazza who is actually saying, okay, this is a signature no party has ever made that has ever managed to do that. In France, you need to um, have around 800,000 euros to print your own ballots and take these ballots and send them to the electoral office in all across France to be able to be electable, even though you're already allowed to participate in the elections. This is, these are thresholds that come before the percentage threshold that we talk about, which is also different across European countries. So there is no common rule about European elections. There are multiple European elections, that's why they're called like that. And these are all little impediments that show that we, we currently don't fulfill even what we already say in the treaties of having European parties, because we didn't dare to actually establish the legal entity European party that could be able to run in different countries. And why is that? It's again because of national politics. There is no interest of a national politician to somehow further the idea of a real European party of like having the, the the power transferred to a more European level and so I think the big question is why haven't we made this step of integration which would actually take up this problem that we like that we don't have a democratic representation really and and build that as a Europe that works and I think then you can come back to the narrative and say this is a narrative that would work because we could say if we had a European Parliament that is actually the most powerful body in Europe that people could come with their life's reality and say, I'm going to elect a European parliamentarian. This European parliamentarian can take anti-bureaucracy or, uh, stop soon, anti-bureaucracy or like any other topic, climate change or all these big topics and somehow be represented for me and then also implement these solutions at the European level and, and um, make them a reality. So I think for us, the big demand that we have um, to actually tell a nice little story about Europe is that Europe works in a European way. That we have the possibility of federalism, that we discuss which competences should be on the European level and that the people can then elect their parliamentarians directly and in comparable ways across Europe so that you can then know that your vote is worth something. If you like, if I currently have to explain to people why they should vote in the European Parliament, most often I hear, like, it doesn't really make a difference, it doesn't have an effect on me. It's more important what I vote for on the national level. But we have to somehow, like, do this, this step forward to um, give this trust to the people that they will make some decisions which might be annoying for us, which might have some tendencies which are scary to us, but which give the people the feeling that they're actually democratically represented on the European level. Yes, so I think what um, the last sentence there is that we somehow need to hold our politicians accountable and I really hope that we can build pressure on people like um, the Chancellor Merkel who has her last years and could really be courageous. We need to hold national politicians accountable to be courageous to do steps towards a real uh, European Union and I will um, be very happy to learn more from you in this conference to take with me on, on my quest of building a real European party. Thank you. David, thank you very much indeed also for that insight really from the political front lines. Next, if I may, to Amrash. And Amrash, would you give us your thoughts about the, your particular narrative, contested or otherwise, about Europe for now and the world? I 
would like to thank uh, for the invitation. I am obviously uh, probably having ideas almost completely different uh, from what I have already heard and probably uh, I'm going to hear during the uh, another two days. Um, it's not arrogance, uh, but uh, I am uh, I am supposed to represent here a couple of people whom uh, didn't ask me to represent them, but uh, there is a public statement uh, framed some two years ago uh, in Paris. It was a short uh, weekend, and uh, uh, the end product was uh, a piece entitled A Europe We Can Believe In. And it was signed by, uh, for instance, uh, among others, Remy Bragg, Shanta Del Sol, uh, Richard Legutko, uh, Roger Scruton, just for uh, yes. So, um, a Europe we can believe in. Um, the, uh, the background or the story behind this document is uh, something like this. Um, um, almost 10, uh, 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I can't, I can't remember well, Dutch conservatives, there are Dutch conservatives, not only liberals, announced that they, um, together with some European thinkers, we launch um, a foundation, um, uh, and it's called the Vandenberg Society, and uh, we have a name, Center for European Renewal. It was well before the crisis, what we are the last crisis, what we usually refer to, and the central idea behind uh, this meeting were uh, different people from all over Europe, Polish, Italian, Spanish, Swedish, some Germans, uh, Hungarians, Czechs, and so on and so forth, uh, gathered in order to uh, name the problem uh, that we jointly, or prior to that, we had independently of each other, individually felt or thought, or, or we had some ideas about that, but then that was now a focus point and this focus point was, um, I, I have to, because I have to, I have to be brief, I'm not going to tell the whole story. It was more, it's more complicated uh, and, and more interesting than I can tell you right now here. Yeah. But the common idea was that the problem with Europe is uh, the problem of education. It is education that, uh, methodologically speaking, or... Uh, or, or finding a basic idea uh, where we can uh, focus uh, all our ideas um, uh, just to, to tell the name what the problem uh, is with Europe. And it is education. Education, um, and what was interesting, that this was a common ground for both the Western European participants and there is the European participants as well. The common thread was, uh, the connecting line was uh, between us that uh, whereas uh, the Western, let's call them conservatives, uh, or, or skeptical thinkers, uh, thought that the, the Western culture has, 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 has uh, had become a sort of uh, aimless, uh, losing energy, and not simply knowing what is what, losing reality. 
on the one hand. On the, uh, on the eastern side, we, we had an education system, uh, post-communist education system, where we were supposed to be happy, we were supposed to just switching over to the uh, Soviet type of education over to, which was based openly, explicitly on ideology as such. Uh, uh, but now absorbing the end of history story uh, and, and similar things and democracy is uh, the best uh, uh, above uh, other things and so on and so forth. Um, education as such in a post-communist country even today, I am a rector of a, a, a posh Hungarian university, I know what I have been talking about. Um, um, the problem is still with us. Who, who teaches the teacher's problem, raised by Plato? Um, but more practically, uh, the Hungarian kids still don't speak languages. Under communism, even if you were a German major or an English major, it barely happened that you could spend some time in Great Britain, for instance, for an English major. And so on and so forth. So, to put it, I know that I will have the, the both cards very soon. Uh, okay. Um, so the common thread was there is something wrong with education, and probably these we could give a name. The education was uh, penetrated so profoundly with the ideological way of thought that was partly due to the loss of intellectual traditions. The, the several pillars of our culture, certainly, well, let me give a name. I don't think too many people uh, read ancient Greek and Latin uh, in this room. It is because of the education system. But this culture, but this is just a symptom. Uh, I don't want to say that all of us should learn ancient Greek uh, or, or Latin. Yes, thank you. Uh, it was an evaluation of what I already said. Um, so this is uh, uh, th this was the common ground of this uh, statement and document, and I myself found four common ideas that connect the whole. Uh, it's about fifteen page pages. I mean the statement, and these four uh, ideas around which the ideas uh, are um, framed in this statement. I call them the excesses of liberalism. Number one, excesses of the individual. Second, excesses, uh, excesses of the rational. Third, excesses of the legal. And the fourth one is excesses of progress. Uh, I don't have time to, to speak about e each of these. But uh, I, I want to just give you one uh, example of what kind of, what is the level of, let's see, for instance, it is the individual. The European culture is unique in the sense how the individual, back to the ancient times, was uh, so, sort of invented. This is a source of our science, not in the modern sense, in the ancient sense also. And therefore the individuality and the individual, the role of the individual and so on and so on, is, is one of the uh, most important developments of, of our culture. But compared to the basic uh, fact that, the, that man is a communal being, 
So this, this tension, which has always been with us, between the individual and the community, according uh, to the statement, or it is implicitly uh, said, that the individual is uh, uh, contrasted to the community where the individual has earned such a, a prestigious uh, position in our society that the community is no longer including religious, civil, uh, national and so on, uh, force uh, communities. Thank you. I am out. <laughs> Let us uh, turn from those thoughts, if we may, to uh, Solomon's I think he's going to finish off our introductory section. Okay, I, actually let me start the discussion uh, okay. after what I heard. Um, I wanted to discuss certain problems, especially between narrative and structural problems uh, or the conditions of possibility of any uh, common narrative. But, uh, but let me refer to the uh, Gisela and uh, also to you, beginning with, uh, uh, with Gisela Stewart. Um, or rather it will be a discussion with Henry Kissinger, who is not with us. One good thing about European Union is that you can discuss even with Henry Kissinger, or even he can be wrong. Um, um, and he is wrong in a, when, he's saying that, when he said that, um, if he really said that, um, that European Union never solves any problem. Um, uh, to me, European Union solved, at least partly, three big uh, problems. Um, one is um, Eastern European problems. We just uh, had yesterday the first 15th anniversary of Polish and not only Polish uh, Eastern European accession to uh, to European Union, and I think um, you know this part of Europe usually is, uh, caused many problems. Timothy Snyder uh, knows well. It, it's not by coincidence that he called, uh, he named his book that is exactly about this region, Bloodlands. Um, I think that, at, that this this was a huge problem in modern history, and at least partly it is solved. Of course. And then let me refer to the title. There is a problem with the narrative. I tried to follow closely this uh, anniversary, and there was almost uh, nothing about any narrative. Everything was about percentages, um, money, um, populism, but there was, um, there was really nothing that we can... Um, in this sense, actually, uh, who said that? Maybe Ralph Darendorf. No, no, François Furet. That, uh, after there was a lot of noise about Eastern Europe in the 70s and 90s, but there was no one single idea that came out of uh, this region. But, but anyway, if you look at the numbers, Eastern European economically is very successful. I would say that the, the best, uh, the most important achievement or the most important consequence of Europe, of Polish or European, Eastern European accession is independence. This is what, why populists are so dangerous in this country. Uh, you can afford Brexit, you can afford Trump uh, if you are an island, if all world speaks English, if you have nuclear weapon, etc. But if you but but if you can afford, if you can survive Kaczynski or Viktor Orban, it's still a question mark. Um, we are not neighboring Atlantic Ocean, we're neighbor, neighboring Russia. Uh, it, it's a difference. Um, um, but um, but, but the second problem that I think um, European Union solved um, is, uh, is a German problem. 
Um, I just read the, the piece we probably all, as well, some of you, uh, of Bob Kagan in Last Foreign Policy, the comeback of German problem in Europe. But actually, this is a kind of a dialectic title, that we have again German problem because we solved so strongly the former German problem, which was, as Radek Sikorsky said once in Berlin, that he's more afraid of too passive Germany, not too active, which for a Polish foreign minister to say that in Berlin, uh, it's quite, it shows you what, what achievement uh, European Union accomplished when it comes to Germany. Of course, you can say that it was not European Union, it was NATO, or it was American umbrella, etc. But let me ask a question for this discussion, maybe for other panels as well. Would really NATO survived without European Union? Would NATO would, would be a NATO, the NATO has, as we know today, without European Union? Um, um, I, I'm, I, I'm, here I'm a hesitant, uh, or like I, I have a lot of doubts. I, I, I prefer NATO with European Union than without, and this is how I understand uh, why before Trump, Obama happened, uh, in the sense that he was not, like from him began this disinteressement for, for Europe, uh, maybe not that strong, not that verbally expressed as, as with Trump, but as a political philosophy, as a certain uh, change, it began with Obama, unfortunately. Uh, then the third thing uh, is Russia. I would say that EU still, uh, if you look at the sanctions, American sanctions uh, um, for Russia are irrelevant. The, the ex trade exchange between Russia and America doesn't exist. It's less than 1% of, uh, of Russian GDP. But the sanctions uh, of EU that we are, you know, in Western Europe you can be surprised that they are still maintained and they are quite... Uh, well, efficient um, and maybe even strong. You, you, this could be your perception. In Eastern Europe, we were disappointed, but we are um, partly disappointed, but we understand and we appreciate, especially that they still exist. Um, but, um, but I can imagine that without European Union umbrella uh, uh, in this region, Russia would be much more dangerous, Russia would be much more active, and Russia, Russia would have much bigger ambition. From this point of view, European Union at least, partly at least, solved this huge problem in modern history. Um, so sometimes, and again, it's like with Germany, European Union is even too successful, um, in a sense that, like, I don't know if you are aware of the fact that it's not France that traditionally used to be the biggest trade partner for Germany, it's not even China. The biggest trade partner for Germany is four Visegrad countries, V4. And the uh, uh, trade exchange with uh, these four Visegrad countries, Czech Republic, maybe in Great Britain it's not really well known who are the Visegrad countries, but uh, it's Slovakia, Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, uh, and it's almost twice as large as with, with France, and the, the, the progress is 9% uh, year to year, whereas with France is 0 0.6. Uh, it, it explains at least partly the problem with contested narratives. Because if you, if you ask yourself why Germany is so passive, uh, is, or why it's 
runs certain appeasement policy towards Kaczynski or Orban. So why they tolerate so much? Um, why Fidesz is only now suspended? Uh, why Manfred Weber could say that in Hungary we have civic conservatism? Um, um, you, you, you can understand why, why, why they also tolerate so much in Poland. Um, and on the other hand, why there is no common uh, narrative even uh, for France and Germany. And it's actually the, the German-Franco alliances, I think it doesn't exist anymore, or it's next to this. Com compared to manifestos, Macron and Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, there's nothing in common. Annegret Kramp-Karrenbauer, when she answering to Macron, proposes to resign from Strasbourg, to replace France in the Security Council for European Union, is like a slap in the face, or like total ignorance in foreign policy. So, but it, it shows you why there is no common, uh, uh, common not only a common narrative for, for, uh, for, for Western and Eastern Europe, it answers also the question about structural um, uh, reasons. Um, to, to, I mean, the business with this Western stable politically, even if kind of a half-ethnic dictatorship, is a certain achievement from economical point of view. It's a better business than in France. This is how hard it is to expect uh, common European narrative. The rest, I believe, for the discussion. Thank you very much.